Welcome, friends and fellow Damons, to another episode of Damonosophy. Tonight, our good friend Edward Thorson, a.k.a. Stephen Flowers, joins us again to talk about his latest book, Revival of the Runes. Edward, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. I'm uh, glad to be here again. So tell us about the new book. What's, uh, why, why is this book needed now? Well, I want uh, uh, to put uh, runes and the revival of the runes in a, in a historical context so that people know the enormity, really, of, of, of the undertaking that is being done, that it's not just some uh, fly-by-night thing and it's not something that... Uh, is just a sort of a new age flash in the pan or whatever that people might uh, assume or some people might assume they they have without uh, knowing this kind of history and background of not only where runes come from but also how they come to our consciousness here and now and so with that connection then the undertaking uh, personally and individually as well as in any group one might be involved with uh, becomes more meaningful I think yeah no I, I I think that's really significant to try and bring a larger historical context and 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 your book covers a really you know long period of time from the you know most ancient up to the uh, more modern um, your chronology centers in on a date of uh, 1554 with uh, history history to omnibus by Johannes Magnus now is that would you say that's the beginning is that the beginning of the that's the beginning of uh, where people start to learn about runes from books you see, that's uh, that uh, normally uh, actual uh, ancient and original runic tradition is, although they're writing, yeah, you could say they're writing in runes on these in these inscriptions. But really, it's a pre-literate society. They're only quasi-literate. It's a truly oral culture. Uh, and, of course, we know that uh, this was in, intentional or that uh, it was very well intentional. Others report on other Indo-European cultures such as uh, India uh, and also, of course, the uh, ancient Celts where uh, Caesar points out that the Druids don't write their wisdom down because they think they will profane it by doing so. And the same ideas were expressed by the Vedic rishis and so forth, uh, that that would be uh, a way to destroy the, the culture, the oral uh, traditions and so forth. And so something like that prevailed during pagan times. But uh, as that culture was eradicated, disturbed, and eventually evaporated, more or less, uh, then uh, the what we can call revival of the runes can begin in the sense that they need to be resuscitated in a new way, which is uh, based on books. Now, that bridge was actually made 
from the last remnants of the oral tradition to the literate tradition of scholars, went from farmers and people who preserved some of this information, and then scholars such as Johannes Boreos, uh, Magnus, the Magnus brothers, did a little bit of it, but that wasn't their, that was just sort of a, 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 a footnote, if you will, in their work. But uh, Johannes Boreos, or Johann Buter, really started uh, the study of runes, but he had to have information from the uh, people who still knew something about them because they were these scholars were totally flummoxed by the these inscriptions they had all sorts of learned people had a lot of wacky ideas about them that uh, they 'd been carved by Adam and Eve in the antediluvian times and that uh, and so forth, but they and they couldn't figure them out really. But and then scholars such as Johann Buter did uh, uh, collect these inscriptions, wrote them out, and and deciphered them and learned to read them in actuality. So uh, that was the re- beginning of the revival of the runes. What's interesting is that uh, this Johann Buter uh, man was. Uh, he was of the kind that we or I seek to be today in what I call radical runology or integral runology, which synthesizes what we know from a scholarly perspective with experiential, experimental insight into a runic practice, putting these two things together. Whereas so much of the, quote, new age, in quote, rune people uh, are just all intuition. There's very little actual lore. It's just a lot of uh, uh, sort of guesswork and just, uh, quote, inspiration, in quote, but not very well informed by uh, the scholarly side of things. Whereas this Johann Bude, he, he put both of these together at the very beginning of the revival of the runes which uh, was not necessarily a continuing tradition by any means. Uh, Things went the way they did in intellectual history in general in Western Europe, and that is this specialization and uh, uh, separating such things as spiritual pursuits from academic ones so that they become progressively more divorced from one another. Where is uh, Snor- Snorri Sturluson and the poetic, uh, you know, the poetic Edas and in the prosy- oh. Yeah, where uh-huh. does all that come in? Where is that discovered? In- well, he he lived in the twelve. He lived in the twelve hundred. He flourished. Uh, the uh, Edda, his Edda book, uh, was uh, written around twelve twenty two. So uh, that uh, is much earlier than this. At this point in time. Uh, for in Snorri's time, the runes were still being used. The, he, the runes were known to Icelanders in the t- 1200s. And uh, so, of course, they recorded rune poems and all kinds of things there. Uh, it hadn't uh, died out. Now, what it had generally become, for the most part, was that the runes had uh, been taken and transliterated to the 
Roman alphabet so that a rune was used for every letter of the Roman alphabet. And so then they would write in what was uh, runes, but based on the Roman alphabet uh, order and uh, so forth. Now, that uh, they did preserve the 16-rune Futhark tradition because that's what the rune poems are always uh, referring to. So these two traditions existed side by side. Uh, so, but Snorri Sturluson, his main mission in life, people accused, oh, he was a Christian, blah, blah, blah. Well, so was everybody else. They, they, you know, uh, but his mission in life was to preserve and promote Icelandic culture and the poetic tradition. And by that, he meant the reference to the pagan uh, mythology and writing poetry in a living way, referring to this set of uh, ideals and uh, symbols. So you'd be similar to something like in the Renaissance in Italy, where someone might preserve uh, knowledge and use the knowledge they had about the Roman gods and write literature based on Roman mythology uh, and, and, and in that sense would be it. and that's why this time period in Iceland is often referred to as the Nordic Renaissance because it was really the moment in time where the old ideas were brought up again preserved written down and uh, and he wanted to preserve the methods of working with the symbols in a poetic way. So that oh, was that's his the, role. That's 15, that 1554 date. That's in the that's in the Renaissance when Magnus and and and, and that book right. Was right? Mm -hmm. So it's like kind of the same. That's sort of the, in the same spirit. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Because discovery that's going on. Uh -huh. It was so easy uh, for Snorri. It was easy at his time period and place for. The uh, for Mar Marsilio Ficino or, or Pico della Mirandola, etc. Uh, people in the Renaissance in Italy, it was easy because they knew the language, Latin, in in the one case in Italy and uh, an Icelandic Old Norse. Uh, in the other case, the myths were there, the literature was there. It just you just had to have the interest and motivation to mine it. But by the time 1550 rolls around in Sweden, the language has changed so radically that it would be very difficult for them if they had the manuscripts, which they didn't. Those were in Iceland. And so uh, the, to, uh, to just make use of this material, it had fallen into uh, a forgotten state by that time. So there was a real effort to uh, to revive it had to so be when mounted. They are when, when they're trying to, you know, trying to rediscover the runes in 1554, were they aware of Snorri Strolson or was that that sort of cut, that information line was cut off? Uh, they, well, they were b becoming aware. Uh, he'd been, and all of that material had been lost. Now, the antiquarian interest in Scandinavia, based on uh, their German models of, of, of interest and that sort of thing, uh, had, had come about. So that, for example, the uh, the Danes who controlled uh, 
Iceland at the time sent missions over to uh, to to collect manuscripts from Iceland in the 1500s and they went and they went to farms and was here and there and everywhere looking for manuscripts and they sent them back to uh, Copenhagen where they uh, remained in the uh, Arne Magnusson Institute until uh, fairly recently, until uh, the middle of the 20th century when they started to be repatriated, <laughs> you know. Hmm. But uh, but they, they collected them, which was good, uh, because in Iceland of the time, it was in very sad shape. It had been exploited uh, terribly by the Danes, and uh, people were starving there. And uh, the, some of the manuscripts were actually eaten as food because they are, after all, sheepskin. And so they were actually eating them for food, burning them for warmth because there was no wood. All the wood had been uh, cut off of the land in Iceland. And uh, sometimes there's one, and uh, I was in Copenhagen, and you can see uh, where the, uh, the people took, there'll be manuscripts that look like vests because they used them as lining inside their clothing. They were so copious. There were so there was so much of this material that, and they were so in such dire straits that this is what the fate of many of these uh, were. And uh, do you see that the the most important single manuscript, the Codex Regius, it's called the Royal Codex, which has got that because someone they gave it the presentation to the king of Denmark uh, was actually discovered. That's the main body of the old poems referring to the gods and so forth. And it was found in a sheep stall, you know, just among in some uh, hay there with a pile, with a pile of dung on top of it or by it or next to it. And actually, you can see where it was uh, discolored from this. And so it was just maybe days away from my being eaten by a sheep or something, you know. <laughs> that's amazing. That's so amazing. that's how close that, that, that it came. Survive. Mm-hmm. But then it just at the last moment it was uh, that. But just in general, that whole culture was preserved, revived, and re- recorded, and interest uh, grew. And uh, there was a lot of um, um, crazy ideas, you know, that people had in uh, Scandinavia, the, the, which we refer to as the Sturgotisism uh, period, the great megalogothicism, where they uh, believed in that they were the true uh, ancient people, the original people, that Adam and Eve, for example, were Swedes, and uh, that, that Eve, the Garden of Eden is in Sweden, and et cetera, et cetera, all this kind of thing, as uh, Sweden became a, a world power in the uh, hmm. 15 and 1600s. The uh, Swedes were very uh, instrumental in the, in the Thirty Years' War. Uh, which took place mostly in Germany, but it's a war between Protestants and Catholics for 30 years. It ended in 1648. And uh, the king, Gustavus Adolphus, who was the student, personal student of Johann Bure, 
was you know, a very great general in that uh, war. Um, another statement that you made in the book is that you talk about, you, you, you state that the runes, and, and let me know if I misunderstood this, runes were probably put together by a single individual. Mm-hmm. Can you talk yeah. a little bit more about what that, what that means? Mm-hmm. That's not, uh, it's a fine theory. I agree with it, but it's not uh, my theory. It's not like that's what I think. It, it, most uh, runologists uh, concur in that. And the reason for it is that it, uh, when compared with the history of other alphabets, uh, we have the runes have a, a very strong uh, order. Uh, and you think, well, don't the Greek alphabet, doesn't the Roman alphabet have a sort of order? Well, so we think that, of course, we would believe that, uh, just given that we know what that order is, and it just would seem so obvious to us now. But when you actually look at the history of these, when you look at inscriptions and things in Roman, Greek, alphabet, so forth, you see that it was uh, not really that set uh, all the way. It wasn't that, uh, and it was, of course, imitated the Semitic model that it was based on. Uh, And as far as that goes, uh, with innovations, the Greeks innovated uh, to to make everything to have vowels and everything, so they could write phonetically. But actually, for example, the Greek alphabet originally just had 21 or 22 letters, and they added some more at the end, uh, sometimes unnecessarily, but they did, you know, to get. Uh, certain sounds and so forth. But it, it was not really that set uh, as it developed. But, but the runes seem to, uh, they have this 24 divided into three groups. There are these metalinguistic phenomena uh, surrounding it. That it, uh, this is the order, this is the number, this is the way they are arranged. And so that speaks to an artificiality, that it's a man-made thing. It didn't just sort of, well, here's our model, and we'll all just kind of work on this, and it'll all settle out in the end, and we, and then schools will be established, you know, uh, wherein we will learn to read and write, and grammar will be written, but none of that happened in the Germanic world. There, wasn't, there were no schools, per se, right? Uh, there was no schoolmaster saying, now spell this correctly. This is how it's done. That didn't happen. It was uh, a completely different kind of tradition. And so uh, that's why you would say it must have been invented by an individual who was very prestigious or became so due to his invention and uh, was passed along from a master to for, from teacher to pupil uh, in an oral way within some kind of mnemonic device that was relatively easy to remember. That's where probably the poems or some other narrative was there to give the people the order. Now that would be passed in secret and not something that they were just saying, hey, come on, let's everybody learn. No, this is a professional think of Egyptian hieroglyphics, okay, priestly writing. It's like a trade secret. And these people were 
uh, others who they had trade secrets, but then why it was important is they were probably poets, storytellers, etc. They memorized poems, they memorized whole epics and things like that. So memorizing a mnemonic device for writing purposes is probably pretty easy for their brains to do. But they wanted to keep this uh, as a trade secret because that was a valuable piece of um, information, something that actually they would get honor and prestige from having this knowledge. So they would probably uh, try to indicate to people that this is taboo, this is something you don't want to mess with, you, uh, you rubes, you know, this is something that only us special people know and can do. And so, again, that all speaks to that culture. That's one of the things that a lot of uh, runologists today are just totally, are trying to totally focus on linguistic uh, things. But the because of the writing system not being very uh, precise and not being very, uh, uh, and being bound by tradition as far as spelling and things like that, that go, um, it's not a very reliable source for language change. They'll continue to spell things the way they did traditionally, even though their way they speak them in an everyday way might uh, be developing, moving on from that. And we are certainly well aware of that in our own lives. That's why you go and you see in a graveyard or something, you see something like R.I.P. Okay, what is that? You know, that's, of course, from Latin phrase, but it looks like rip. What's that? It's a mystery. It's weird. Uh, but it's old, and it's foreign, and it's all that. And, and But that's just tradition. That's what we put there. Or, or our language, how we have archaic spellings, like words like write or laugh or whatever. The spelling of them reflect an old pronunciation of the word that has passed our spoken language by, but tradition holds that this is the way the word is spelled. So there's nothing all that mysterious about it, except then when a linguist comes along and says, look, this word here, uh, like they must say it's R-I-G-H-T, they must have said something like Richt or something. That's the way it must have been said in 2021. They're writing it. That must have been the way they were saying it. No, it's not right. Uh, so they're not reliable that way. right? They're, they're, they show older stages of the language. And uh, so the, and that's this conservative or arch, archaicizing trend in the uh, style of the inscriptions. But what I find more fascinating is what we can learn about a lot of things about the culture and the people. I have this idea, I put it in the book here. You know, you've seen these uh, criminology stories uh, or, or scenarios uh, about mind hunters, right? Like they're looking for serial killers or whatever. Well, the same thing pertains to any any human activity, you say like what? Who is the person that did this thing? It could be a great thing, a good thing. It could be a bad thing. But the patterns are the same. Same that there'd be this. The actions reflect a mind. 
And so by studying carefully the actions in context, then you can learn something of the mind of the creator of the object or of the deed and so forth. So really where, in my way, I look at it as I am a sort of a mind hunter of the ancient runic masters. Mm. You know, looking yeah, at what they left behind and uh, reconstructing their uh, world from that. Yeah. So there's something very, it strikes me as very entrepreneurial about the idea of the runes having been created by one person and then and then shared and then others found it effective and, and utilized it. It's, uh, you know, there's, a, there's sort of a division in, in the way the world thinks about things. There's one side that thinks that great things come about because of exceptional individuals that have, have vision and put things out there. And then the other side that says that, well, individuals never do anything. It's only, it's only collectives and groups and wise organizations that can bring goodness to the world. And I can't help but think that there's something that, that this, this ancient pattern is kind of trying to tell us something there. Uh-huh. Well, they're certainly entrepreneurial in the sense that they, their God uh, uh, woes on us. Of course, uh, Latin, Mercurius, uh, not the same word, but the same function, Dumasilian's uh, function, uh, and, and that is a god of, uh, of, tra- of trade and commerce and, and that sort of thing. And that's how and in what activity these, uh, the, the inventor of the runes uh, was certainly uh, someone aware of Roman uh, culture. He was probably a tradesman with the Romans uh, or traded with them for sure. That's, uh, that's where we see in archaeology we discover that these uh, prestigious chieftains of the north have Roman goods in their graves like glass uh, vases and things like that that a Roman manufacture and that was high prestige but so they uh, were, were trading with the Romans from before the time the runes were invented certainly uh, but the the basis of the runes is certainly the Roman alphabet but what is uh, uh, astounding or of greatest interest is not that it was based on the Roman alphabet but uh, that they changed it uh, didn't slavishly follow the uh, shape or order of the uh, of the alphabet. They could have. Obviously, it's written in the Roman alphabet. Our language is written in the Roman alphabet today, so it could have been done. It wasn't. It was already ready-made thing there, and most everybody else either used the Greek or the. Uh, Roman alphabet when they started to write their language that was just like the practical easy uh, thing to do but they didn't do that they uh, reinvented it for their own sense of meaning and aesthetics and other things so that's also very important telling and uh, and revealing indeed 
What what is the Armani tradition? You talk about this a little bit. Is that um, uh, is that some, does that diverge from runology? Is it a is it a um, a take on it? What is what is the Armani tradition? Well, that uh, is a a uh, mindset or a philosophy that was um, composed uh, created by a Austrian poet and uh, writer named Guido von Liszt, and he, uh, because of the prestige and the power of the idea of the of scripture, of the written word, which is not obviously from our previous statements, is not something that's actually an ancient Germanic thing, but is a uh, Roman thing, a... Uh, a Middle Eastern thing, the idea of the script of the book, etc. That being the the prestigious kind of culture. He uh, looks at the Edda and sees, oh, there's this rune uh, episode wherein the god Odin uh, discovers the runes, and then he part he says okay i'm going to here are the rooms and he sings 18 songs so then he says guido from this says that must be the most ancient the most ancient tradition it's written right here it's in a book it's in scripture that there are 18 rooms but of course at the time this was written it was there were 16 rooms 24 before and at, at that point it was 16 uh, and there's no indication that this is the kind of poem where it is enumerating the rune staves, per se, uh, because the word rune could just as easily mean any kind of secret information, of which a letter and its value and a poem attached to it and all of that is one kind, is an example of it, but it's not the only rune, all right? Uh, so he misinterprets in my way everyone every academic person so well that's just a misinterpretation but he uh, was a theosophist and believed in his visionary powers and he could reconstruct all the ancient uh, ideas through his uh, clairvoyant powers and that sort of thing and so he did what a lot of other subsequent visionary uh, runologists uh, have done, is uh, like Ralph Blum or whoever, they just make up some stuff based on their own uh, insight and then proceed to teach it as gospel by writing it and, and insisting this is the one true way, etc. And so uh, he uh, created this in about uh, 1904, published in 1908, was when he published his book, The Secret of the Runes, which I have translated, I can get that, and, uh, and so forth. And then from there, a German tradition of runology uh, grew, and uh, he was not uh, on record as practicing any of the of, uh, practical rune magic the way we usually think of it uh, today. He didn't do that that we know of, but people very close to his time 
uh, did. And uh, it was in the 1930s we have records of people uh, doing using his system and uh, believing that he was correct in his assessment uh, and then moving on from there with the Armanin tradition of 18 runes. That uh, has been a problem uh, in a way uh, that uh, because of his, he, he set up this uh, uh, attitude towards academic runology that they were all wrong and that he knew the truth because of his clairvoyant vision. Mm-hmm. Of course, people who study the Armanin runes, which I did, that's how I started out. That's what I discovered at first. And so I, I worked with them, and I've studied and read and plumbed the depths of Armanin uh, tradition. And uh, the problem with it is, of course, that there's, what about these thousands of runic inscriptions? Well, you don't find a single one of them that appears to be in the system he's talking about, right? Mm-hmm. So you can't use that model for deeper understanding of the runes based on actual ancient evidence carved in stone here. And that so. was kind of a thing going on at the time, going on at the time, because um, you've got like the golden, you know, people like the Golden Dawn, you know, Mathers and mm-hmm. whatnot, people like that saying, oh, well, I, I know the truth because I have, you know, secret, secret chiefs are telling me. Mm-hmm. Then you have, yeah. And then you have Aleister Crowley come along and say, oh, no, I, I know the truth because you know, I know the secrets, you know, I know the secret chiefs and it's, you know, and it's, yeah, and it's, uh, <laughs> and it's, a, it's an Egyptian god. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. So there's like a trend, like theosophy, you mentioned theosophy in that. It's like there's this trend of people bypassing, you know, attempting to bypass academia by, mm-hmm. um, by 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 offering an alternative channel of knowledge that no one no one else can verify, you know. <laughs> right. Which, if you can get, if you can, and people do, and get practical results from an idiosyncratic magical vision, then that's all very very fine and good, right? It's just that when you say that you know the truth about system X. If, there, if no one knows anything, like in the, back in the 1800s, uh, whoever people were translating hieroglyphics, right? No one really could translate them, but people were doing it, saying, oh, I know how to do this, and that was just crazy based on nothing, right? They weren't actual. Mm-hmm. But no one was there to say, well, wait a minute, this, this is what this is. Everybody can learn this. Uh, but until the code was cracked, they were free to do that kind of thing. And so mm-hmm. that's the way a lot of uh, people in the esoteric world deal with some of these ancient uh, traditions. But my way of thinking, as I came to them, uh, the, um, the, it's much deeper, richer to be able to actually discover the uh, lore and the depths of it that is there and then we move on from there it's not that that's where it ends just learn what's on the page 
and close the books. No, they actually going further and using the runes and runic uh, and mythic knowledge and mythic experience and the Odinic uh, path and so forth as a uh, as an initiatory tool, but to just bypass everything that's already on your plate in front of you, ready to be uh, consumed. And just say, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to sit here and stare off into space and make something else up about it. You're not, it's a dead end, really. And you're throwing away what is uh, being given to you, what has been bequeathed to you by, by tradition, that all of what the revival of the runes is a book kind of about that. This is how we came to the place where we can uh, know quite a bit and then what we do with that knowledge beyond it in what I call uh, integral runology, integrating the uh, intellectual and the experiential. Hmm. And can, have the, can the runic revival, can this have, uh, have relevance beyond uh, the, the European, European culture, European mindset? Okay, that's what it is. That's what it is, a specific... Uh, studying how things are revived or how they are reawakened uh, is a universal uh, principle. That and the Germanic uh, history of Germanic uh, uh, intellectualism and, 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 and is rich in this sort of development of tools for the rediscovery of ancient things and bringing them back alive because. The Germans, German people, Germanic peoples, whether they're English, uh, Scandinavian, Germans, etc., uh, ha- having an enormous inferiority complex due to the, the Renaissance, when the Renaissance, when the Italians could say, hey, we have our ancient traditions right here, right? We just go pick Ovid off the shelf, or we can read Latin, here it is. We got all of our old gods, these are our old gods before uh, Christ, these people were, uh, were our, this was our, our gods, our religion, I can get into that, it's right here, but the Germanic person was saying well you don't have anything like that well they did, but it had, they had to dig for it, right they had to up, up, look under the sheep dung we got found something you know, it was like we got to get out there and actually dig for it, then we go oh my gosh, I can't read this material it's too. It's in some ancient language. I've got to figure out grammar and, and how to work and how to learn, and and so it's just a process of of, of developing methods of research and so forth and that. And so these things developed and became the model for everyone worldwide for how to do research into obscure topics and develop methods for doing so. They were forced to do so because there was no other way to find out what they wanted to know. I, I, I think it's super important, people, that, that, that principle of digging for the truth. Mm-hmm. The idea that, right. that the truth needs to be dig, dug for, if you, mm-hmm. if you will, because if people don't do that, if that's not a, if that's not a value, Right. If there's not a some mm-hmm. kind of sense of, of urgency to do that, 
then people are just subject to whatever um, whatever knowledge and you know reality models are just delivered to them. Right. Right. It's just um, received and, knowledge. Right. Exactly. And there's something there's something really deep and really important about the need to dig uh, to find the truth about um, about origins um, mm-hmm. about um, about uh, about values and everything um, that, that you have to work for that you have to dig for that because it's just it's and you have to make it your own yeah you have to make it your own just like the thing about saying well the Germanic people made didn't just take and receive the Latin alphabet and just use it which they could have done but said no there's something else that I want to build into this which we are already have an innate thing. I will use this, but I'll synthesize what I know with what this is and create a new thing. And uh, that is, I feel that is more my own. And that example as a culture, cultural phenomenon, is also true of in individuals. That if you are just handed something, just say, just remember, or do these chants and do this and that. And then also, by the way, when you do them, you will see X, Y, and Z. What? You're like, just, first you're telling me exactly what to do, then you're telling me what's gonna, what the results are going to be. Right? So it's just, you're just indoctrinating me. You're just uh, demanding that I accept your your vision on faith, but what I see the runes do, and uh, the model that is more initiatorily effective, is that you provide methods and uh, a certain tradition, but that uh, but it's just as a planting the seed, and then that person is going to take those signs, symbols, etc., plant them in their consciousness, and develop them and uh, they will have something based on that but it will be unique to themselves and that's uh, of course people do that even if even if religions for example that are very uh, doctrinaire attempt to program people it does, it never works if somebody really has a uh, philosophy a religious life a, a deep experience it's going to be unique to them it's not going to be just a uh, replication of what they were programmed with it can just be you know it's sterile and meaningless uh, at that point so since it's going to be innovated on an individual basis anyway you uh, will be better served to work with a system which encourages and accounts for and uh, supports that very process. Now, d- does this relate to the concept of runa? Well, yeah, that's uh, you know that's the idea that the the runes are individual, sort of a periodic table, if you will, of the mystery of this, uh, the unknown of, uh, of that which is not yet revealed. And it's perpetual in the sense that uh, there's always something that's not revealed, always something not known. And so the runes are about uh, 
discovering a pathway to knowledge, but one that never has an end because there will always be the the uh, unknown beyond every uh, door. So this is a perpetual idea that uh, keeps feeding off of itself, and then that's how development becomes perennial and perpetual as opposed to just, well, this is the mystery. They reveal it. Now I know it. And that's the end of the story. Again, this is the sterile model. But the runa is, uh, that's one of the things, again, about these New Age people. Uh, it wasn't Ralph Blum who invented the idea of the blank rune, right? But uh, it was something, somebody did that before. It was kind of like based on the Joker, I guess, you know, in divination. But the idea is so profoundly unruna. Because if you take and say, I'm going to take this blank thing and put what amounts to runa in this rune cookie, what does that do to the rest of them? Mm-hmm. You've just eviscerated. They, they should, each one should have has that. Mm-hmm. There's the unknown about each, each one of them all the time. Mm-hmm. So uh, that, that's present in each one. Right. And so uh, to separate it out, even if it were in any way legitimate to begin with, if you were able to do that or did conceive of it that way, that would be uh, devaluing the the runes themselves, and uh, because they would lose their mystery, they would just be, oh, that's not mysterious. That's just that. That's just that sign, and that's what it means. And none of them are ever that that way. It's uh, curious where you see that there's one of the ancient runic inscriptions, uh, which I give that bit in there in the book a couple of times, is this idea that they are uh, the runes. Uh, it'll say, like, I, I carved this rune. They go, wait a minute, that's a singular is, uh, noun is used. It doesn't say I carved these runes. It says I carved this rune, which is referring to the whole thing, right? Mm-hmm. And so that, on the one hand, and then it specifically says that the runes are uragina kundo, that means derived or descended from the gods. So that's uh, in stone. We see this guy, like I said, the mind hunter idea we hear, and this person is communicating to us from from. 1,500 years ago, and he's saying, telling us things like uh, that every, the runes are in all of this, a rune is present here throughout, and that these uh, things are derived from the gods. And so that's, again, just a, a stamp saying these are sacred. When people say, well, it's an alphabet like any other alphabet, there's nothing sacred, uh, mystical about them. That's just all a bunch of hooey and nonsense. Well, it's like, well, don't you think this guy who carved this in 600 uh, knew a little more about the subject matter than, than you do? Mr. Cambridge Scholar or whatever. Right. That's just pretty arrogant. Pretty arrogant. <laughs> oh, he's probably an idiot, you know. <laughs> so uh, that's 
So Rumna is the idea behind the, the whole uh, thing as far as uh, the way that they thought about them. And that's what shows this initiation moment of, of Odin where he uh, sacrifices himself to himself and re reaches this near-death experience and then suddenly uh, is enlightened. He takes up the runes. And uh, then he comes down and begins to enact them, begins to carve them, begins to write them, and so forth. It's a really powerful image. And, and one of the things I think of with that now is the idea of a, a single individual. The idea of a single mm -hmm. individual coming up with the runes. I can't help but think of the, the story of Odin hanging himself on the world tree and coming back with the runes. Mm -hmm. And that's, of course, what each individual uh, initiation uh, activity, that's uh, what we are going to be uh, doing and trying to uh, to go back to the source, not go back, to not get information from an indoctrinator, but rather have someone indicate to you how to get back to the source for your own experience to take place. What is the role of the of the Rune Guild in the Runic Revival? Well, I uh, hope I outlined that uh, well in the book in the sense that uh, I'm not going to be shy about it or whatever, <laughs> that, uh, you know, that uh, uh, has been a successful establishment of this uh, Rune Guild, uh, and uh, it uh, is uh, a philosophical culmination of the process that was begun by uh, goes back to the ancient times because it uh, uh, enacts the philosophy of this integral runology, but also replicates, and uh, not as a planned thing. It, uh, I, when I started doing this, of course, I'm being guided by that which I call the old man, that is by Odin, and it's not always... Uh, not always comfortable. It's not like, well, I know everything, and you know, he just know uh, what he says, and I will, uh, I will, uh, everything will be provided. Uh, it provides a lot of headaches and setbacks and tough lessons over and over again. You know, uh, it's not known, but as has been said, I think he only said, it's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Mm. And uh, so it. Uh, but uh, it uh, is, uh, I think, a manifestation uh, of that. That's my assessment after these years. And uh, now it's being run by other people. I don't have my, I, you know, I'm still involved, but it, it's running on its own and uh, doing, uh, doing well. And uh, it is, uh, uh, has a mechanism by which it, perpetuates itself philosophically and in a proper uh, proper shape and form so it uh, is uh, the, but it's not as we've uh, discovered uh, people like we put out our material in the form of the nine doors of Midgard that people can read and see the curriculum of the basic beginning curriculum but uh, initiation is 
is beyond that. That has to do, initiation will have to do with, with the experience and the sharing of that experience with others who have a similar one who can actually take a person beyond just the ABCs, as it were. And uh, so we have the Guild itself has provided a lot of information for people to do self-initiation, and that's all good, it's great, uh, and, uh, but at the same time it exists as a uh, guild, a collegium, right, a, a, of colleagues and people who uh, will be able to give a person uh, the kind of context they need for for perpetual for eternal development and 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 uh, understanding not just sort of collecting this piece of data as just another but a a real culture that goes beyond just that so that's I'm very uh, pleased with the way this uh, the rune guild works and everything we have uh, a lot of people say, oh, my God, I can't be, they're all, all the leaders are like PhDs and stuff. It's like, well, that's not planned. I think what happened in a lot of cases was uh, that uh, people had seen my, my, me and what I had done and were inspired to uh, do it themselves. Well, that's exactly what ought to happen, Right. Mm-hmm. It's not like, oh, you get a, you learn this, you then write a book, and I will read it and believe it. Mm-hmm. No, not that. This is, again, a method, a way, a way of life, a thing that's a, this is where this guy went. If I had said, I'm going to go travel, and then you, you just sit there, and, I, and I'll come back, and I'll tell you about what it's like in Tibet or whatever. Mm-hmm. Do you want to go? Don't you feel like you want to go yourself? Oh, no, no. I'll, I'll just hear the stories. That's fine. You know, well, that's not an initiate. That's not what, that may be a good uh, in, uh, believer, an indoctrinated person and uh, all of that, but not what is intended for the school to uh, convey. The guy who made the lighthouse, Robert uh, Egerton or something like that. Anyway, the guy he he uh, he's making a movie now in Iceland uh, uh, called The Northman, and it's uh, and it's uh, based on the story of of Hamlet. You think, well, that's uh, you you know what I'm talking about here. Uh-huh. The, yeah. You know Hamlet, of course, but Hamlet is the Amled, Amled saga, and uh, there, it, it's set in Denmark for a reason. I mean, it's a Dane, it's uh-huh. a Norse story, and you think about yeah. uh, uh, Hamlet, and what is it? It's, it's a pure saga kind of thing about a father gets killed, he has to avenge the father, but there's a moral dilemma since the father, the man who murdered the father is now his stepfather. So all of the moral, tragic sort of dilemmas that are present in typically in sagas is there because it is a saga. You know, mm-hmm. it was originally a Norse saga. Yeah. 
and uh, said it, which Shakespeare did his thing on. But so this guy was going to say, well, let's return it to its more natural <laughs> sort of yeah. setting and probably be more pure and powerful that way, which it will be. Yeah. He's really good. Uh, and uh, so that's uh, that. I'm, I'm looking forward to that. He's got that uh, yeah. the woman, uh, Anya, Anya Taylor, whatever her name. That uh, you see that uh, uh, mini series called The Queen's Gambit. I about, did not. It's a, okay, it's great. It's wonderful. It's about a. It's fictional, but you know about a a, a young girl chess master. You know this kind of obsessive genius world. But anyway, she's really great, and she's going to be in it and all kinds of great things. Uh, uh, Alexander Shershkord is in the director who did The Lighthouse? The Lighthouse. Robert Egerton, I think is his name. Okay. Yep. And he's supposed to also make a a remake of Nosferatu. Oh, uh, wow. He's supposed to do do that. He's been wanting to do it. I heard there was another supposed remake of Nosferatu that they were trying to get done, and that wasn't working somehow or another, but you know how those wow. that goes in that world. Yeah. But uh, those, that would be, of course, each generation should remake the movie, I guess, like uh, uh, Werner Herzog made one, and then somebody else should do it. It's the kind of thing that's an I- iconic film so that should uh, not that you know remaking things it's like people try to re, you know remake psychos like wait, wait a minute this is like a perfect film you don't want to remake it it's fine you know but uh, yeah. in the case of Nosferatu it could bear some up, updating in the sense of just making it uh, more uh, effective to the modern viewer you know what I mean yeah yeah and uh, well, it has a mythological, has a mythological aspect to it. So if it, the, the, myth, the myths can get told and retold, you know, and it has mm-hmm. like new context because there's such deep patterns and, and, and archetypes in them. So you can mm-hmm. reveal new new things by having them reinterpreted, um, you know, for the next generation. Yeah. Or if it's in a good with – a, with a good visionary a person has something to say, then yeah. But if they're yeah. just doing it to be doing it, just to trade on the title or whatever, that's not so good. Yeah. I'm uh, I'm working on a. I just finished a translation. I don't know the, whether the name uh, Ernst Schertl means anything to you. Uh, it sounds familiar. Yeah, but oh, probably yeah, no, uh, they. He's the German. He's the German guy who wrote like he wrote like one occult book, right? One or a couple of occult books. Yeah, he wrote. Yeah, uh-huh. he wrote one great uh, work or whatever. It's his uh, book, Magi Magic, and uh, so you know. And one of his the persons who read this book has made it famous because people are saying, "Oh, this guy read it," and da, 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 you know. But this this guy was called Nameless. Uh, he, uh, you know, I mean, the, the Sheraton was put in prison and stripped of his PhD by that guy's crowd. You know, I mean, he had nothing to do with right. this, yet he's, uh-huh. his name has been is constantly brought into this context. And besides that, there, a translation has, was done a few years ago, several years ago, 
but it's like almost Ill- illegible. You can't. It's just totally inept. Absolutely, mm-hmm. a tragic. Just totally beyond. It was done by a machine, right? It's a digital. Mm-hmm. Th- it's like this man wrote, and he quotes from people who are tougher than him. He wrote in a very uh, peculiar, you know, style. And it's not that bad, not as bad as Guido von List, let's say. But uh, nevertheless, it's this stuff and not not something that a machine can do. So I've done a complete a new translation of it with notes because he has many, many passages where you think, what the heck is this guy talking about? You know, I mean, as far as just the context and that sort of thing. And then also with whole... Uh, explanation, context of, of it, and uh, so that's a, a book I just finished. But uh, he's quite a, a character. He's mainly known for his uh, bizarre sexual uh, publications. Mm. That's what he's really most famous for. But everything, I have a lot of these. And what is mostly, if you read those books and look at them, those are also just shot through. Everything is about magic, you know, and the practice of magic, everything that he writes. And so uh, I'm going to try to bring this uh, person into their uh, rightful position uh, as an independent entity uh, that is of extreme interest. But you will be especially interested in it because he, uh, the things he talks about, about how initiation, how magic works, and how it is related to one's relationship with a person's demon, Mm. which he says a demon or or God, but, you know, demon. He prefers that, and he's openly... Mm -hmm. Uh, satanic, so, you know, Satan is the is the great creator, and so forth and so on. He is not shy about what he talks wow. about, except uh, insofar as he also he was brought up a Catholic, and it obviously couldn't be a true, but he 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 he's very uh, uh, what we say, uh, you know, has very many positive things to say about Catholicism, not for its theology. But for its uh, what he would what he would call concrete beliefs, you know that these mm-hmm. things we do are real, you know mm-hmm. that this is really, really happening. And yeah. uh, so, but he and he doesn't he 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 explains how to do this process, but it doesn't trail off into. And he refers to it openly again uh, is uh, saying into being like school lessons, right? Because to be an effective initiatory system, if you have to be what he calls a self fertilizer, a self initiate, you're not going to have a, a master initiator that you trust. Which in 1923, when he wrote it, it's like as in then as now, be pretty tough to find for the, anybody. There are more people interested in genuine initiation and there is a supply of uh, qualified willing uh, masters to teach it right so uh, you're going to be a self-fertilizer he calls it and uh, so given that it's a tricky business because you've got to have real genuine 
experience. It has to really happen for you, you know. Yeah. And so you've got to uh, come up with it, but to say, okay, I'm going to determine my curriculum, and it really resonated with me because that's kind of the way my rune guild exercise, the whole thing. I mean, it just resonated repeatedly about my relationship with Odin, for example, or my development of the rune guild uh, and the curriculum and so forth. It's like, well, nobody's teaching me to say, here, these are the lessons. Nobody told me that. I had to create it myself. But having done it, having saying, this is it, this is what I'm going to do, you have to throw yourself into it as if you were being commanded by some higher power. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to, to have that kind of intensity and, and, and uh, completely uh, overcome and not be subject to self-doubt or in any way uh, led away from what uh, is your uh, intense visceral uh, path. Yeah. And so he's, he's very intense. You know, he's like, yeah. beyond, you know, he's not just saying, well, let's do this and let's do some, you know, let's uh, see what happens, you know. He has a really interesting things to say. He's like, you got to eat meat. Why do you got to eat meat, sir? Well, I said, you know, that's eating meat's like a, a, you know, that's you're taking in the animal essence and everything. And if these people who eat meat can't be controlled, that's why everybody wants, you know, go, uh, people want the vegetarians because they're easy to control. They don't have this, uh, this power that they're ingesting. And so they're easily tamed. Yeah. Things like that. It's full, uh, but he just kind of goes and talks about things and goes to another thing, and so you have to. But I think he did that intentionally in this book. Uh, I've got the title I'm going to use. I hope it's called "Dancing with the Demon." He was a guy who taught uh, dance moves and things. Dancing. Uh, he's written up in in books on uh, on the dance world of Germany in the twenties. And uh, he did, he, but he would hypnotize his dancers into, and so it was like almost like a modern Sufi dervish kind of performance. You know what I mean? Really great uh-huh. stuff. So anyway. Uh, Greg, well, you mentioned his, you mentioned his, his, his name to me um, mm-hmm. a couple of weeks ago, and I, I, I wasn't familiar. And so I went and uh, I, I, I wikied it. I looked it up online. And I was mm-hmm. like, how did I, how did I miss this? You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> how did I not know about this? So I'm really looking forward to that book um, on, on him. I think that's going to be really great. That's going to be great. Yeah. Then I'm uh, writing um, a one uh, now on uh, the, uh, called the occult roots of Bolshevism. Okay. Yeah. I'm getting, have you ever heard of uh, cosmism? Oh, yeah, Russian right. cosmism. Yeah, I love yeah. it. Yeah, that's one of my. Yeah. So we're gonna. It's, that's a. Uh, yeah, Fyodorov and all the. Yeah, so it's it's uh, the whole thing about that, and then and and, and the different things, but how it goes through all of these uh, uh, phases and so forth in the, the Russian world. Oh, that's awesome. So, yeah. 
So I wanted to go back to, can I go back to the uh, revival of the runes? There's one other sure. thing I wanted to ask on this in your um, appendix. One of the appendix, appendices, you talk about the peace sign. Um, yeah. The peace sign is uh, a, a death rune inadvertently taken up by the radical left in the 60s. Um, mm-hmm. do you, does this have any significance for the radical leftists of today? Well, I, I, I don't know. I don't think they, they don't use the peace sign too much, do they? <laughs> In, nowadays, I don't see it uh, when I see a, a riot or whatever in Portland. I don't see the peace sign being uh, brandished too much. So I, I think they use the you know the anarchist symbol or something you know the from Europe quite uh, often. But uh, that uh, you know that's uh, it's an aggressive sign as it originally was because the death rune you know. And we see that as my in the in the appendix. You see, a, it's not just guessing, right? Here, here's an example right. from World War II, using yep. it. There it is, and what its whole significance is, and and so forth. So uh, that's uh, I think it's a pretty uh, definite thing. I mean, it's not that, that that's exactly what it uh, was. And of course, there was the if you look at old films, I've seen it uh, uh, that the, the other sort of peace symbol was uh, the one, the real one they originally used, which is looks kind of like the Mercedes star, you know. I mean, it's just three yeah. spokes. It doesn't have the thing down in the bottom, uh, and uh, that's what the, the death room thing, but the other one was, is the uh, semaphore thing of an N and a D, nuclear disarmament, you know, and it was, uh, so there were two signs. This one the one that we're familiar with superseded the other. I don't get into that. I would just say the interpretation is that the peace sign as we know it, as the rune is more compelling as an image than the other. It just has more of a command to look, right? Mm-hmm. So it survived in a Darwinian world of symbols. It was more fit to survive. Uh, it was more right. compelling. And so it became, yeah. it superseded the other one, and the other one got more or less forgotten. But, yeah, that's, uh, as far as uh, th- that kind of thing, all this, what's going on in the world, I will address that more in my occult roots of Bolshevism, which I kind of take, it's kind of tough to write about it, uh, but uh, I try to take the same approach to it as I do with the, uh, of course, I've completed my book. It's complete. It's sitting there, it's just that I don't know whether it's the time to put it out now, uh, which is a, the occult dimensions of national socialism. It's like uh-huh. my 40 years in the making, <laughs> you know, uh, right. book explaining this. But uh, and I don't. I just say this is what's you know going on. I mean, uh, I think I analyze it in a way that uh, in both cases which is pretty uh, reasonable and and uh, and real and uh, without uh, uh, without uh, getting hysterical or one way or the other about it, just uh, an analysis of, of this sort of thing. But uh, yeah. in the case of the left and the whole uh, uh, things that are going on nowadays, uh, there is a, a magic, a sorcery, and that's what this Russian... Uh, 
you know, Bolshevism and, and their connections with magical concepts and magical practices is very strong. Uh, so that the, the, but of course, it always is under the cover because it's more powerful as a as a signal to say, oh, this this is science. Right, and we control the science, and this is science, and we uh, will tell you what is right because it is scientific. And so that, but that had a magical uh, power, you know, to people uh, in uh, the, the in their that world, and that was really, uh, That's not. I'm not. Just, having to bend it at all. I mean, there's people, there's quite a bit of interesting material on this subject, but it, most of it's not very written in, in a very many popular books, right? There are books like mm. Russian Cosmism or the Russian Cosmists or the old, that uh, uh, magic and the occult and Russian and Soviet culture. It's an anthology. These kind of articles, they, they, they get into it uh, pretty pretty well, but uh, I'm just trying to put it all together and kind of put it into a context of to, of today and some of the things that are uh, going on as far as how the uh, how the sorcery works. You know, the sorcery of, uh, of the red, red magic and how how it works. Uh, the uh, and the, the esoteric or sort of occult basis of uh, Marxism and the mm-hmm. formulas of it, this idea of plus power, minus power, and and how this supposedly works according to almost like a weather pattern, right? So mm-hmm. that uh, plus power goes to uh, is uh, is destined to become minus power, but it has, according to the historical dialectic and so forth. And so this, are all these theories, they're all just like any other magical theory. There's nothing that really says, this is what will happen. That's, but it's imperative that the persons believe it, right? But uh, uh-huh. the magic of, of words and how to use words uh, in uh, order to uh, change uh, people's minds and so forth and a lot of this was rooted in uh, especially uh, Russian uh, ideas about language and so forth you know Stalin wrote a whole thing on language he had like weird linguistic theories and all kinds of things but uh, and he had a personal witch most people don't know that Uh, and most of most photos of him even the Guy who stood on the on Lenin's tomb and everything it was probably almost in every case a double. He, he didn't ever want to be photographed, and so forth. He was like very superstitious. Most of these guys uh, they were pretty uh, pretty uh, incredible. So like uh, people talk about the uh, the uh, you know occult roots and you know, Nazis and how those Nazis are all into the occults like they. Nobody <laughs> holds a candle to these to a lot of these Russians as far as the incredible things they believed. You know, some of them were. I mean, had had deep roots in it. What was real? I mean, what could become real? What happened was 
uh, they had great ideas and would have gone. Uh, they would have been on the moon 30 years before us. But people like Stalin, you know, just put the kibosh on everything. You know, just it was just uh, completely no, just innovation. Just believe, think, don't think. If you look like you're getting a little too smart, go to him. I'll send you to the gulag. Just a really gangster, right. you know, approach. Just because in right. all cases, whether we're talking about either side, all these characters, most of them are just gangsters. They're just in it to get uh, power, you know, and keep mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, But there were uh, idealists, dreamers, people who had... Uh, big ideas on uh, in these people. A lot of them ended up, like I said, in gulags because they were unreliable or whatever. People yeah. like uh, Alexander Bogdanov. He's the uh, he wrote uh, this book called Red Stars, a science fiction book about mm-hmm. uh, a communist utopia on Mars. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And it was actually. That's why Red Star has uh, this Red Star being the emblem of the Red Army. That was actually taken from his book. It was so popular, yeah. you know. Wow. And uh, so, so it was. Uh, but he, uh, he was a anyway. There's just a lot of interesting characters. A lot of ideas came from from the cosmos and stuff. And uh, you know, one mm-hmm. of the ideas with Fedorov that you know his, his mm-hmm. futurism is he talks about how eventually science it's, it's inevitable that science will get to the point part, the point where we can re put together recombine the molecules mm-hmm. of everyone who right. ever lived or died and basically mm-hmm. bring everyone back from the dead and so all the other mm-hmm. things are like kind of built built around that we'll need new planets for people to live you know and and technology will move up around this and um one of the, that reminded yeah. me of of uh the zoroastrian concept of frasho mm-hmm. yes know? And, and i have in a way he's saying you know that that is absolutely that is that's in my head and, and and we will make it happen yeah. you know yeah, and we will make it happen, and it's reasonable and uh, scientific, you know, just like with the Zoroastrian thing of uh, it's not just sitting around waiting uh, for God to save us, but rather uh, Ahura Mazda, the wise Lord, has given us the tools by which we must participate and make these things happen. And so, yeah, it's perfectly in keeping with that. I think it's more uh, more than just a coincidence uh, that there were there's some awareness and knowledge of uh, of those of you know the Iranian connection with the Russians. Obviously, uh, most people think well, R- Russians are the Scythians. You know, they're Slavicized Scythians for the most part, as far as uh, mm-hmm. their ethnogenesis. But yeah, I have a whole appendix in this book. Is that part's complete? It's mostly done. Uh, called uh, Esoteric Bolshevism and Zoroastrian Tradition. Mm. So uh, you know, it's just that like five good. pages, but but that's just saying that that uh, is exactly what's going on. Uh, yeah. So, but they didn't. 
obviously. You know, when you have myths that are contrary to the truth, uh, such as with Marxism, then uh, you will uh, not be able to, to, to bring it off. But uh, that's, uh, of course, somebody Fyodorov, he were not Mar- Marxists, right? But these things all sort of were swimming around so that you had to, in order to become effective in that revolutionary thing, you had to account for a lot of these ideas. A lot of the men were were into it deeply, but those are the ones that essentially were pushed to the side. But if they were really smart, they were used, of course, for what they could offer. Right. And uh, I, I'm amazed, of course, that they, so the Russians seem to, you know, both the Tsarist times and the uh, Bolshevik times uh, were a whole lot more merciful than the uh, Nazis were, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, because they would, like a lot of these, uh, like Lenin or whoever, they would just like send them into exile or and just let them continue to organize and do all kinds of things, right, uh, and, and just kind of let them go on. And then the Bolsheviks kind of did the same thing, except in some of the orgies that Stalin would get into where he would just, you know, kill people massively that seemed to be crossing him or whatever, and the, the purges and that sort of thing. And a lot of these guys fell, fell victim to that over time. But sometimes well, they, kept, they, uh, they had a lot down. of people going into the gulags, a lot of people going mm-hmm. into the gulags and using them for uh, slave slave labor. Have you ever read that? Uh, yeah. Solzhenitsyn, Solzhenitsyn's book. Yeah. Solzhenitsyn, uh, yeah, the yeah. Gulag Archipelago. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's uh, but they uh, some of them just continued on. One guy uh, is like you know went worked and said, "Well, you, uh, I can't." Remember the name right now. Uh, he is uh, a guy who kind of reminds me of uh, the, the ages of fire and ice. You know, he had this theory about sunspots or sun solar activity and uh, how it affects social, uh, individual and social uh, patterns. You know, behavior, whether it's economic or, or uprisings and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So this whole uh, Thing like that, but these guys they would say, "Oh, you, your theory is not." They would just throw out this, like in the Middle Ages, they just say, "That's satanic," or "That's heretical," or "That's this." And they, they would just say, "That is idealistic. You are you're departing from his uh, from material uh, dialectic and so forth," and just say, "Okay, now you go to the gulag and see if you can." get your mind straight now, and uh, they would just re-educate them or whatever, but then they would come out and they'd have to modify their beliefs and not write about that anymore, (laughs) you know, but, you know, get into something else. Oh, yeah, Uh, yeah, Chizievsky was his name, Alexander Chizievsky, yeah. But anyway, he's like solar activities affecting human behavior in cyclical eleven-year cycles. I think it was, but you know, but it's just full of uh, incredibly interesting uh, material. 
yeah, so. cosmic influences. And, you know, you see these influences. When, when I was looking into, like, the Fedorov stuff, I was like, you know, he knew, well, he knew Tolstoy. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, um, and um, oh, who's the, other, who's the other Russian writer? Um, Dostoevsky. Dostoevsky, yeah. Dostoevsky, mm-hmm. Right, and so you have to think about the, the, the connections there, that the influence is there. And then you also start to see it in, um, like, Ospensky and Gurdjieff and Theosophy, mm-hmm. the whole idea of cosmic influences, like you were just talking about with sunspots. I mean, there's, and you start to realize there's this, whole body, there's this whole body of a perspective coming out mm-hmm. from that, that area of the world that just, like, reflects these other things. And it's like, you know, Fedorov, well, maybe he came up with all of it, but maybe he got things from somewhere else also. But um, it's, it's just really interesting um, when you start to, to look at all the correspondences. With this, mm-hmm. with this, I was uh, just uh, kind of off the topic, but a fascinating thing. I, I knew, like, Gurdjieff, he actually could speak f- five languages fluently, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. which were... Not, not he, uh, he was, uh, uh, you know, of course, Armenian and Greek were his mother and father tongue or whatever. And then Russian, obviously, that's what he was educated in. Uh, Persian and Turkish. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Turkish. Somebody like yeah. the Turkish, yeah, the uh, Bennett, John Bennett, you know, who was, uh, he was, a, that's how he met Gurdjieff in Turkey. He was like ambassador or some kind of, uh, from England for Turkey. They said he, he spoke yeah. Turkish like a prince. <laughs> <laughs> but that's and then you got all these other languages, you know, too that he could just you know gibber jibber. That tells me a lot. And these they're kind of unrelated. Well, uh, they're not just all just oh yeah, I speak for, you know the uh, Italian, French, uh, Spanish. You know, <laughs> it's like well, they're, you know, they're so closely related. You're not really, you know, it's yeah. great, but. But when you say like that kind of uh, menagerie of languages, that, that uh, tells me. I mean, it says something about consciousness. It's like this. if you can do this, uh, yeah. you're you're, doing, you're able to. You've got a mind. No, I think there's that, uh, yeah, has, there's definitely something to that. Definitely something to that. And his book, um, uh, Beelzebub's Tales to His Grandson. That's part of the whole. Mm-hmm story about how that book is written like he started writing pieces passages pages of it and he'd have them in different languages and he had different students around at the priory who all spoke different languages and then they'd take they'd take sheets of it and like go like translate you know translate it and i mean there's this huge process spanning years and years of that book actually coming into being in a in a english version with all these hybrid hybrid words in it and stuff like that. And you can't help but think, and I think he would say this, I think he does say this, that the book is like, a, you know, that it's objective, right? That it's more objective mm-hmm. than other books you might, might find. And part of that has to do with the um, multi, you know, multilingual is not the right word for, for what I'm trying to say here, but the, the fusion of, of perspectives that, that, mm-hmm. That, that spans oh, yeah. a variety of languages uh-huh. that leads towards objectivity in, in some way. Mm-hmm. You speak a number of languages, don't you? Uh, yeah, you know, speak, write, uh, do something with a bunch of different <laughs> levels and types of things, but, you know, 
So, but you know, most of the ones I know any well are all Germanic languages, which are all you know. I got the basic underlying code. I'm impressed with uh -huh. somebody, although it can be confusing to the mind when you know when you are. It's in this part of your brain where there's like similarities, so that they it's not a, like a strict division so much, you know. So it can yeah. start to get confused. For example, I mean Scandinavian languages. That's like man, that is. They're all so similar that you're sitting there, and I read one or the other, and different ones, and then it's like you they start to bleed over into one another. Uh huh. You know. Because they would be similar, we might uh, be similar, but uh, are almost the same, but not quite the same. And so you can sometimes your brain comes up with words that are actually in Swedish when it shouldn't be in Norwegian or whatever. But it's no big deal. I'm just really into read. Read is hopeless. Uh, kind of exercise to speak, try to speak Scandinavian to Scandinavian people because they all know English so well. It's just like, right. come on. Just, <laughs> just, <laughs> so, but it's, a, it's a, for, I, I need it for, for reading, you know, I need to read these languages. Uh, and uh, German, I'm, you know, got that down pat, but uh, so anyway, Excellent. I'm not that well. I'm not uh, that good right. at languages, really. I'm just very inspired, so I work hard and with inspiration. But that's why, Mr. G, I'm thinking, oh my God, five languages speaks Turkish like a prince. <laughs> that's pretty good. Okay, so that's. Uh, I just uh, we got off onto uh, things, but uh, that's uh, some of the stuff I'm working on, uh, and that's what. Uh, Always in my mind. I fin Excellent. finished my monster so, uh, book. Wait, you got a monster book? Yeah, it's called uh, Gothic Meditations at Midnight. It's esoteric interpretations of classic horror films, 1913 to 1975. I cut them off in 1975. There's a lot of good ones after that, but but uh -huh. they, they they don't pass the Rorschach test. <laughs> because monster kid, mo monster kids start to make the monster movies after that time, and so they are very conscious. You know, they can do good, but they're very aware of what's going on. Whereas the older uh -huh. stuff is like just kind of bubbling up from these pe these filmmakers unconscious more uh -huh. than uh, than just. They're not necessarily really into it uh, all the time, you know, but they, they could make them and, and then so forth. So things, and of course, a lot of it is because it's old stuff is based on literature, so we have to get into the literary models that they're based on. But it's, it's a really fun book to write. I finished it a long time ago, really. But, wow, uh, well, that's going to be coming out coming out soon? Sometime. Who knows? I got ten, ten <laughs> books that are completed. And sitting kind of in a pipeline, you know what I mean? Just sitting there. Yeah. And so and then i got to figure out who did what and how to do it all. And I'll do some of yeah. them myself. But uh, there's like this uh, Ernst Scherkel book has got to be done by an outside publisher because it has to really look good. We have uh -huh. a lot of uh, images. He was 
his books always had, not magic, uh, Magui doesn't have any pictures in it at all, but his uh, his uh, typical publication he's famous for has a lot of uh, lurid pictures. Okay. <laughs> and so we want to have some of those. And, and uh, his brother uh, did, and there are some just sort of surreal or expressionistic kind of illustrations that he did and his brother did and all kind of, you know, that. But a lot of his photographs, he was a, a proponent of, of the, of course, nudism was big and, you know, the, the, the reform movements and all that sort of thing. But he, yeah. he approached it from a completely different viewpoint. He said, oh, we want to, you know, you don't want this being natural and open. He said, okay, that's all good. Just, but really we want to exploit our sense of, of shame and and uh, and that sort of thing you know we want to use that as a kind of a you know engine for uh, arousing other energies wow so uh, instead of just like you know just free and easy cause that's what I mean 90 all of it. he was the only one that sort of used it or thought of it in that way he was like the odd man out there but uh, no, that sounds yeah, like that sounds like Anton Lavey right there. But oh yeah, that's what uh, he uh, he's definitely well. He's a precursor. I didn't know about Sheracle. Uh, uh, just seen the name a few times. But I was thinking, my God, this guy's just he has the theory that I, you know, concocted myself of carnal alchemy. You know, this is mm-hmm. you know. So, but again, it's like you know, you must be on the right track you know if other you discover somebody that's bigger than you are you know and it's not like it could yeah. follow down similar patterns and that sort of thing and you can yeah. and so forth so that is corroborating but uh, he was uh, he's quite a quite quite a character i would uh, i'm excited to to put this you know out there it has a lot of uh, uh you know introductory and contextual stuff that uh really make it all make sense. It's like the quality and the scope and the intensity and everything of what you're doing just keeps, uh, it keeps getting better and better. So, um, so don't let up. (laughs) I won't. I will. I got my plan here is I got uh, another few years here, uh, to work on a few projects. I'm trying to get most of the really important ones done. And, uh, then I'm going to start, uh, working, uh, to try to uh, create a kind of a, a school on on a virtual school, the Wood Harrow School, uh, where we have uh, some of our other uh, for Germanic Indo-European studies, but scholarly stuff. I mean, just see because this is a, it is magic in this sense that the tradition of what the way I was taught and some other people I know in our tradition. Uh, of academic tradition is cut off now. They they will not teach this material anymore. And if they do teach it, they don't teach it the way we learned it. Mm-hmm. You know, and so. But then there's a few people I know. Michael Moynihan. He studied under an old master, and another a couple of other people. And uh, so I want to have them as faculty members also, and then we mm-hmm. will have courses we will have the material and what we will do is like if you do this you can just get the courses a la carte you know just 
audit them, as it were. Just that's it. Uh, you know, for a fee for each course, that's fine. But the real thing is, like, if you want to become certified as a uh, Germanist in this tradition, you know, then you have to do these basic core courses and then do some other things and then and so, so, you know, submit more to a program to do things thoroughly and systematically uh, as well, you know, mm-hmm. and to get that. Uh, but uh, again, I hope that we will do this, but then other people will see uh, because other traditions are also going to be either eliminated or just, hey, we, we, we need to, to, to keep this uh, line of tradition, academic, intellectual tradition going, you know, because the uh-huh. universities are becoming more and more vocational education schools. Who, who can afford to go to, to, to pay these exorbitant fees if you're not going to get a job in something that's going to make you money? Only the already elite, you know, cultural, economic elite uh, can afford to study philosophy or, or French literature. Come on. Uh-huh. Yeah. Right? So they've, uh, that, that, that's the most insidious, uh, sinister sort of thing is that they say, oh, you know, those people who matter, those in the elite, you know, they, they, that's their thing. It's back to just being, it was, it was democratized at one point. Where people like me, you know, not not so we're not so well off kids, you know, whose parents can just you know barely afford to uh, to send me you know a few hundred bucks a month to for school, you know, that right. kind of people. I could study runology and do all the things I did because the economy of the, of the educational system, the university, was plausible. You could do it. Yeah. It wasn't just reserved to, because if, if you said, well, to get this degree, you're going to be $100,000 in debt, who would study comparative religion, mythology, and runology? Come on. Right. You know, only somebody who, for whom the money doesn't mean anything. Right. You know? Well, so, I mean, that's one of that's one of the problems with, with kids who are going into school right now is that they take all these, they do take all these loans but at a time in their life when they don't really understand what it means to have a loan that is, you know, over $100,000. They, they don't understand the significance of that. And then they go and they take classes that are basically, you know, you know, uh, you know, Marxist critical theory and stuff like that. Mm, right. Well, we're mm-hmm. going to tear it all down anyhow when we get out of school. We're going to tear it right. all down. <laughs> so, you know. It might be working out for them. Right. You know, so, but that's the whole thing. That's the, the essence of of red magic or whatever is that it's like a, you know, if you're a gangster, it says, why be, why say, well, let's, let's knock over this bank or let's do this or that. Finally, they came to the conclusion, why don't we just take over the whole damn country Mm -hmm. and own everything? I mean, our gang, right? Right. We could take this over and, and just knock over the country. No, why, why bother yeah. with a bank here or, or you know, a, a heist here or there? Just do the whole thing. Yeah. 
So uh, that's what happened. Oh, you know, set up that's our the own, same thing set with up our own bank. Uh, you know, set up our own yeah, bank. Yeah, yeah, just central, set up our own central <laughs> bank, right? I mean, mm-hmm. <laughs> They had no, but their money wasn't even, you know, traded it because uh, it wasn't worth anything at all. But, uh, yeah, that's the thing is that they just don't, uh, they, uh, it's completely insane, you know, what, what, what goes on out there. But uh, it's going on. Yeah, it is. Well, maybe what you're doing here will um, provide a... A, a a a brilliant and energized alternative to that to actually yeah, provide well, uh, knowledge. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it could be just I, I see them uh, at least uh, the, you know they will be a a, a lifeline or something where if it won't change anything dramatically in my lifetime, maybe, but. Uh, you know, you leave these things back and, you know, with this awareness that this is what's going on, then you have something for the next generation to pick up on, you know. Yeah. yeah. And uh, that's the way well, it's but... happened in history quite a bit, whether it's uh, leaving books behind. But that's what I realize, of course, is why I'm moving ourselves move into this avenue of, of doing these things digitally and you know in on the computer which is totally contrary to my nature and uh, abilities and knowledge but uh, uh, is is that that's the way this generation will absorb information mm-hmm. so you have to take your opportunities the way they're offered not the way you wish they were or you can't change that yeah. You've got to speak the language that people understand, use the symbols they understand, and that sort of thing. No, and a lifeline, I mean, lifeline's pretty good. I'll take it. And really, I mean, a lot of what you're, you're talking about in, in Revival during what we've talked about tonight is about these things survive, not because of mm-hmm. movements, but because of lifelines. You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then the time comes right, and then the the, the time is correct. The sunspot activity is just right, and that's like Sheraton talks about this so brilliantly, uh, you know, uh, about magic and how what you really want it to work is, you know, it's like people say, well, this is fate, right, that this is fated, uh, whatever, your accomplishments, et cetera, so forth. So you want to... Uh, once you uh, absorb this uh, entity, which is your self, your demonic self, then it sh- then a new fate is absorbed, and everything then happens on its own accord. Mm. You know, you're not sitting there going, oh, I don't have a girlfriend. I better do some love magic. Oh, I need some more money. I better do prosperity spell. You know, no, just this one thing. If you do this one thing and do it right, you everything else just falls into place of its own yeah. accord because you have manipulated by this one great act, fate, to your mm-hmm. benefit. It's a powerful yeah. idea. That is. 
Very good. Yeah. All right. Well, Flowers, thank you for uh, yes. spending the time with well, us this evening. Mm-hmm. Revival of the Runes from Inner Traditions. I want, everyone should go out and get it. It's a great book. Highly recommended. Um, and uh, do you have any uh, do you have any final final thoughts for our listeners this evening? Uh, well, uh, just uh, that's that's right. Uh, uh, if you're interested in my work, uh, Amazon has everything. I don't know. Uh, I, I, Amazon is where you can find things, and then also uh, go to the ArcanaEuropa.com website, and uh, that has some has things. I just came as just available there now. A work called Rune Song, which I did many years ago, and those people at Arcana Europa have created a new. Uh, great edition it looks super the book and then the uh, recordings it's a people are so uh, anxious and then uh, about pronouncing runes and runic things correctly this recording that goes with this book uh, was created to help people in that so that you could hear these sounds and uh, these will be on line, you know, to those people on their website, to the people who buy the book, the recordings will be there for download. Excellent. So that's just coming out. And that's where you have to go for that is to their website. Excellent. Yeah. All right. Well, okay. Well, thank you for uh, talking to me. uh, Keep, keep doing the great things that you do and we'll uh, talk with you again sometime. Great. 